0: Okay, we're going to continue in Daniel chapter 7. So, uh, for those of you here for the first time, we're doing a series in the book of Daniel. And last week, we set ourselves up for a closer look by comparing it to chapter 2. Structurally, the, uh, the two chapters go together inside the book of Daniel. And we saw in chapter 2, there were four successive kingdoms that would precede the coming of God's kingdom. And we noticed then several contact points between that and chapter 7, especially the first several verses. And we also saw uh, a number of contact points with the creation narrative, the sea, the wind, uh, that sense of chaos, and then stuff starting to emerge, and then the arrival of this in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. It's almost like a chariot throne. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. This is a great king. His court has a hundred million people in it. Um, And, you know, you're meant to not think the numbers literal, of course. The court was seated. The books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words that the horn was speaking. It's like this: this little tonsil in the corner. And he's talking and he doesn't even realize whose presence he is. I kept looking until the beast was slain its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a Bar-Enosh or a Ben-Adam or a human being or a son of man. We'll talk a bit more about that. Coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. This is a Jewish prophet talking about a human being being worshipped. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never pass be destroyed. I, Daniel, a Jewish prophet, was troubled in spirit. The visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. And I approached one of the hundred million that was standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. Sounds familiar. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. So we we could stop right there because what you've just seen is the main point. He's going to go into more detail because he's curious, but that's the main point. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth tonsil. What was different from all the others and made it so terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left? I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and the other horn that sprang up before which three fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And as I watched, this horn was waging war. So now we we, we pressed replay. It's not doing this again. It's the same vision, but he's almost like getting a chance to go back into the vision and watch it a bit more. By the way, if you're in the prophetic and you get a dream or a vision and you're not quite sure, you can ask to go and watch again and look for the details
1: you missed. It's not cheating. It's like you can do it. (sighs) Where was I? Verse 21.
0: As I watched, yes, the horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them. Until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Same story, literally the same story, not, a, not another event. And so he gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is the fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are the ten kings who will arise from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier one. He will subdue three of those ten kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress the the holy people of the Most High, the Most High's holy people, his holy people, and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty and power And greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. Third time we've been told this. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. Are
1: we getting the point? There's so much that's gone on. I, Daniel,
0: was deeply troubled in my thoughts. My face turned pale.
1: But I kept this matter that I could not explain to myself. So, quick recap.
0: Chapter 7 parallels Chapter 2. We have four kingdoms represented in Chapter 2 by different metals in a statue Now they're represented by beasts that are increasingly beastly. They lose their humanity, even though they are human kingdoms. There are echoes, of course, in contrast with the biblical story of creation. We're actually dealing with creation, decreation, and recreation, as it were. Something's broken, what God had put in creation, and so creation itself is going to be repaired. The kingdoms from chapter 2 are destroyed by a rock not made by human hands, and yes, the parallel, the rock not made by human hands turns
1: out to be a human being who is God. Gosh, gosh, no wonder Daniel is
0: in a raw panic about what he is seeing. He didn't have, you know, the Nicene Creed and the the benefit of Trinitarian theology. He hadn't You know, Chalcedon was still 850 years to come, which is where they worked out the final technical details of the doctrine of the Trinity. He's he's thinking, have I gone mad? I'm looking at heresy. These kingdoms are then destroyed. And, of course, at the summit then of Daniel, God has come as king in Jesus. So the chapter itself has two parts. There's the dream itself, the vision in the night, and he, and he returns to the dream. He, he kind of goes back and watches more and gets more detail. And then there's the interpretation part of the dream, uh, which is as the prophetic vision continues to unfold. And even in as this is going on, Daniel is conscious of what's going on inside of his spirit. He is freaking out. He's finding it, he, you know, I mean, later in the book, you'll have an experience where he, he literally feels ill, um, but he's completely mystified. He's troubled, he's curious, and he's full of questions, which is great because he actually like engages it inside the prophetic encounter. So, we can proceed with caution because certainly the prophet didn't understand all that was going on. And... You know, Peter makes this point clear. The prophets were, you know, the Holy Spirit almost like picked them up like a river and carried them along. It wasn't involuntary. Of course, they worked with God, but but they were in a flow that they didn't fully understand. They couldn't tell you what all of this meant. I mean, some of it seemed to outright contradict the stuff that they'd been taught. Now, can I quickly make a distinction here? They were looking forward to a Messiah who is now Hebrews chapter 1 from verses 1 to 4, the final and full communication of God. When we look back through Jesus, we, we don't expect more information that adds to Scripture. They were still in the download phase of Scripture, which would reach its full culmination in Jesus. In other words, some of the stuff in the prophetic, he's being stretched beyond. So was Jeremiah. So was Isaiah. The Spirit was leading them up and up, and up, and up to this summit of revelation in the person of Jesus Christ. And Daniel, in these moments at this chapter, is at one of the highest, highest points in the entire Old Testament prophetic journey. Now, every step is necessary. But make no mistake, for this remarkable vision, So we need to look and understand. We can tread carefully, but we should not ignore it. So there are several things to note. Firstly, Jesus said, when you see this human being with divine attributes, this human being who turns out
1: to be God, that's me. This is who I am.
0: Even though it led to his death. Charged by the high priest at his trial. Demand, tell us, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am. You will see the son of man talking about himself. I am this son of man. What's going on? Daniel is being given a vision of judgment day. This is the end of the world. He's seeing the end of the world. He is seeing the end of all human kingdoms. And they end because they come under judgment. And so we move from the place of the chaos and the wind and the seas into the throne room of the great king, which, of course, in in the normal practice of ancient cultures, the throne room is a courtroom. The king was the judge. And so you went there. So you you know you didn't have a judiciary and a president, you just had a throne room, which was a courtroom. And so you go into the courtroom and the books are open and the scrolls are unrolled, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
1: So this is judgment day. This is the end of the world. But the
0: end of the world, then according to the logic of the prophecy, happened two thousand years ago.
1: So, potentially, the new creation started 2,000 years ago.
0: Ah, okay. So, what do we need to remember? We need to remember the telescopic effect of prophecy, where things that are in distance, you know, separated, and you look at those mountains, you can't quite tell which is the furthest and which is the nearest. And and, and, and you also can't tell what you can't see in between. So, you know, the person looking down at, uh, on, the, on, the, on the view line on B can't see that there's a car, there's a gap, there's a, that's a timeline between that and A. And the prophetic is looking not over a landscape, but it's looking over a timescape. And those things sometimes get compressed. And so, Jesus comes... And the end of the world happens. Jesus is announced. Jesus is introduced. And the end of the world happens. Well, at least that's what Daniel maybe thought was actually going on. And the prophets would have been curious. And certainly the Jewish nation thought that when Messiah comes, this is it. This is the great and glorious day of the Lord. The enemies of God will be judged and the people of God are going to be liberated. So he's given a, a vision, and the new creation effectively has begun. Why? Because God's kingdom is being established. So now there's an added twist. Although the kingdom is future, the New Testament in general, and, the, and Jesus in particular, is very clear that the new creation the relaunch of humanity has already begun in Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Now, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Or they are a new creation. But most likely, probably the best translation is, if anyone is in Christ, look, there is the new creation. The new creation in the form of a human being is walking the earth. God is O, you know, overthrowing decreation by starting with human beings and depositing into time and space and history his new creation, and he began that with Jesus. So it's true. On, in the day of Jesus, the old order of things was passing away; new things were starting. The new creation has begun. <sighs> so. In theological shorthand, we talk about the kingdom that is both now or not yet or inaugurated but not yet consummated. In other words, consummated is when there's literally no other kingdoms. And so you get a hint of this in the text where it says, and so the other kingdoms were allowed to endure for a time, and then, you know, everything got wrapped up. But, of course, that's not the first thing that strikes you in the text. So the beast is overthrown in Daniel 7 when judgment is pronounced in favor of the Son of Man. The courtroom is there, and the Most High, the Ancient of Days, declares and speaks in favor, and so the beast's power is stripped. Three times we read how he loses everything in favor of the Son of Man because of a verdict that was issued in the courtroom of heaven. But don't miss the fact that this happens in the midst of warfare and suffering and pain.
1: And supremely, we don't uh, fully understand this. Jesus was the first
0: person to take the suffering servant. Passages in Isaiah, most famously Isaiah chapter 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Uh, The punishment (coughs) that brought us peace was upon him. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. and The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so it pleased the Lord to crush him and wound him. He was a suffering servant. Jesus understood, like no one else did, that the suffering servant and the victorious, glorious son of man is one and the same person. We'll see more of this in chapter 9. But it is a matter of historical record that Jesus suffered and died under the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. In other words, by a, a power of the fourth beast. But he was judged for our sin, and vindicated in his righteousness, and the Most High, the Ancient of Days, issued the verdict in his favor. Now, Revelations 4 and 5 take us back to heaven's throne room as a courtroom, and in that same, there, there is the mighty waters, there's the, you know, the glorious God, there is the white hair, there's the eyes, there's the the imagery of God. It's the same eschatological picture, as it were. Sorry for the big word. Um, But then we go there, and we see the books and scrolls, and we see it's, you know, these things are being opened. And we see in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 5 that the lion of the tribe of Judah The root of David, not not the fruit of David, the root of David. He came before David even though he's one of David's descendants. The root of David has triumphed. But when the Apostle John looks in the prophetic realm, what does he see? He sees a lamb that's been slain. You see, the suffering servant and the triumphant son of man, the son of God, is one and the same person. That mystery stymied the prophets for hundreds of years. Jesus was the first one to fully understand. Even John the Baptist, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, didn't understand all this suffering, didn't understand all this
1: opposition, didn't understand why the beast was winning against the holy ones. He sends a message to Jesus, are you the one... I mean, he had said, behold the
0: Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet, he's imagining a triumph, and
1: all he is seeing is suffering and pain. Jesus triumphs over our sin as he is slain, and our judgment day
0: is in the past. And in some way, it's still in the future. Because there's now, and there's not yet. Now we're going to come back to this. But make no mistake, the main verdict has been pronounced in our favor because of what Jesus did at Calvary. It's already been spoken. The verdict has been given. And the verdict is in favor of the Son of Man. So let's explore this glorious kingdom and this king. Firstly, I want to talk about the humanity of the kingdom of God. The humanity of the kingdom of God. It's not on the slides. Get back to Genesis chapter 1. You see that the rule of God is intended to be exercised through people who are made in His image. And so if there's been a desecration or a decreation of God's plan. God is going to restore his kingdom, and if He's going to do that, it will be because He has restored humans
1: It's so critical. God is not going to overthrow his original intention.
0: We know nothing about the kingdom if we don't understand that it's the kingdom on Earth is entrusted to willing human beings who give themselves to the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. And so we saw last week that the reign of God re-humanizes our empires. (laughs) To become truly godly is to make us real humans. It reverses totemization, which is when you take an animal and you you think that's my best attribute so whether it's an eagle or a shark or a snake or a worm or whatever it is that you make as your totem it reverses that it says no 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 the highest highest form on earth of God is another human being when you're looking into their eyes you're not looking at God but you're looking at one who bears the image of God who knows the love of God who has, is carrying the value of God upon their life? Human kingdoms dehumanize. God is
1: passionate about rehumanizing humanity, and therefore He
0: rehumanizes authority, and He rehumanizes humans' authority in such a way that his image is once again evident in us. So we must be decommodified. One of the things these kingdoms do, especially if you read the uh, book of Revelation, is humans are turned into commodities. They just get bought, sold, they just numbers, and they lose their value. They're priceless, infinite, God-given value. So we must be decommodified. We are not things to buy and sell. Now, this has got massive ethical implications. Laws that should reflect these values will will make a kingdom righteous. Not so. And we must be, listen carefully, it was on the screen,
1: de-beastified. Does that make sense? We've got to get the beast out of us. We must be de-beastified.
0: Where we, we're behaving more like animals instead of like God. Where it is, you know, in the language of evolution, the survival of the fittest and the fastest and the one who's red in tooth and claw, well, they
1: will prevail. No, no, no. So we come to the next point, which is now this. If we
0: see the humanity of the kingdom, then we confronted by the humanity of the king. You see, in Genesis 1, God will reign through man. Now, Daniel's going, God will
1: reign as man? God becoming man to reign? How dare I even think that? Now, one day he's stunned, distressed, confused, and has a truckload of questions.
0: It's a thoroughly Jewish prophet who sees a
1: pre-existent divine and yet human figure, and he is awestruck and confused.
0: So remember, this is Aramaic. It's the last of the Aramaic chapters. The Aramaic phrase, bar anash, means human being. It says, I, I saw one like a human being. I saw a human being. It's, it's a metaphor to say, like, he wasn't saying, I saw, you know, he's, it's like, I, but of course he's glorified, he's, he's, he's radiant, he's in heaven, and he's human. Now, just a little bit of technical stuff here. A literal translation of Bar Anash, Anash, is son of man, Bar meaning son in Aramaic, Anash, man. But the equivalent meaning in English would simply be human being. That's how they would say human being. But Christian translators have retained the literal translation because these exact words in Aramaic are the words Jesus used to describe himself. And Jesus would have spoken largely in Aramaic. And so he's literally talking about himself using
1: this ditto same phraseology. So what do we see? We see
0: the Son of Man receives authority. That sounds fair enough. That still sounds like Genesis 1. But glory, yes,
1: image of God, yes, okay. Sovereign power. Kingdom power. What? He becomes king. And he is worshipped for all eternity. All nations, all peoples. The kingdom of God has a human king. Daniel is stunned.
0: Now when we get to the New Testament, we've had to wrestle with this and it took us several hundred years to get our heads around this. But make no mistake, when Peter had been walking with Jesus, and Jesus said, who do people say I am? Some said prophets, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah. We don't know. Some say John the Baptist. Who do you say I am? You are the Mashiach. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. Jesus had been calling himself Son of Man, and Peter, on behalf of the disciples, makes the connection. If you're that Son of Man, then you're the Son of God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. I tell you, your name is Peter, but on this rock, I am going to build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. This stuff we're looking at is the key. I'm giving the identity of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the stuff he has come
1: to do. The identity of the king, this is what unlocks the kingdom. But the Jewish ambiguity goes deeper because not only was this contrary to Jewish expectation
0: especially, and and, and so we've seen Daniel was like this bestseller at the time of Jesus, but there were these passages that absolutely stymied them. So there's the humanity of the king. The kingdom of God has a human king, but now Jesus
1: represents all humanity. You see, (coughs) son of man also means son of Adam.
0: If you use the Hebrew language, remember New Testament is mainly in Greek, most of the Old Testament, vast, 99% of it is in, uh, in Hebrew.
1: And then these few passages, especially in Daniel or in Aramaic. Son of Adam. Now,
0: Jesus is described both as the son of David and as the root of David. Go figure, that messes with your brain. David, the greatest Jewish king. But Jesus is never described as the son of Abraham or the son of Jacob as if Jesus' Jewishness was the most
1: fundamental thing about him. You see, he is the one in this passage who saves all peoples and all
0: nations from the dark, deceitful, and oppressive powers of the boastful beast. So we read, all peoples and nations of every language will worship him. Why? Because he's not just for Jacob. He's not just for the seed of Abraham. We will be included in Israel, but this is a universal vision. Again, the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the people of the Most High. This is universal. This is international. This is not stuck in one tribe or people or language or nation. Jesus represents all humanity, and as such, he says of himself in one of his most famous Son of Man sayings, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He's telling Israel, nobody is left out.
1: Nobody is left out.
0: Now, some of Israel themselves didn't even realize they were lost but he wants them to know what his mission is. And maybe this morning you need to know that no one is so lost, no one is so disconnected, no one is so disqualified, no one is so distant from God that he cannot reach you and save you. He wants to find you. He will
1: seek you and save you to bring you home one of his greatest son of man
0: sayings. And so the king represents and redeems this king, this God king, all humanity. And then Jesus incorporates, literally like he takes into himself all his holy people.
1: So as you look at the vision, as go the kings, so go the
0: kingdoms. As go the kingdoms, so go the kings. The king represents the kingdom and its people, and the kingdom represents the king. And so the kingdoms, actually these empires, these beasts or these metals, they, they last past several kings. Some of them are up to 10 kings or 13 plus one. And so you, it's not just the individual There's this idea of corporate identity within each kingdom. Does that make sense? So, for example, a kingdom included a realm. A kingdom included its place in time. A kingdom included the people who were the subjects of that kingdom. And so, as goes the kings,
1: so go their people. If your king is the world emperor, well, then you belong to the world empire. Now, this explains this idea that if you're in the kingdom of a
0: king, then you share their kingdom. So we read in verse 18, but the, most, uh, the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. What's the contrast? Remember, this is the end of the matter. <laughs> This is the end of the matter. It's been firmly decided. We've seen it three times over. Like you're going to have all these other kingdoms, but when this kingdom is fully and finally established, this is the end. It's done. (laughs) There ain't any others that will ever displace it. Yes, there will be warfare. Yes, there will be suffering. Yes, there will be hardship.
1: But this is the end of the matter. Forever and ever yes forever and ever <laughs> forever yes forever and ever get the point we read that the ancient of days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy
0: people of the most High. say so pronounces favor of the son of man but he also pronounces in favor of the holy people why because he's their king As goes the king, so goes his subjects. They incorporated, they included in him. And so we read in verse 27, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven are handed over to who? The holy people of the Most High. Goodness me, now we've really got to scratch our heads and we've got to wrap this up, but just understand this, that the holy people of the Son of Man are the same as the holy people of the Most High. Let me wrap up and move to application and prepare for communion.
1: What does this mean for us? His reign becomes the reign of the people. You see,
0: the people of the Most High, the people of the Son of Man are incorporated and included in Him. So what is true of Him in terms of His reign becomes true of them, which means that once you've put your faith in Jesus, what is true of Him becomes true of us. There are limitations to that statement. He alone is God the Son. There are uniqueness aspects, but there's so much about the kingdom we're not told we'll become divine. We are told that we will share the kingdom, its authority, its fruit, its root, its power. We will possess this kingdom. It's mind blowing. Now, there are four things I want to make at this point, and then we be done. We are His people by faith. We belong to the kingly. Son of Man. As his people, we then belong to the Most High. So we belong to Jesus and we belong to the Father, which means, you read in John's Gospel, Jesus simply says this, belonging to the Son means belonging to the Father. (laughs) Belong to the Son of Man, you belong to the Most High, to the Ancient of Days, to God the Father.
1: We are His people. We are the people of the Most High. We are His holy people. Again and
0: again and again. Three times. That's the description of the people who belong to Him. They are holy. You see, He shares not only His name, but His nature with us. That's amazing. You know, so often we are praying for different kingdoms. So we're praying that the name of the president will change to someone whose name sounds more like mine. We want kings that look and sound and talk like me. Then the world will be fine. No, we don't need a change in name. We need a change in nature. doesn't matter who rules, but if they look like him, if they're holy, then you're going to have a great sonar. And you won't have stage six. There'll be more than enough power. (laughs) But don't think that just by changing the name of the person in power or the party in power, you're changing anything.
1: It's changing the nature of those who rule. So your biggest criteria is who's the person who looks most like my king?
0: I'm not arguing for narrow Christian politics.
1: I'm arguing for true godliness in government. So if he shares his nature with us, then we're holy and we
0: are included in him. Again and again. So the New Testament takes these ideas. It's a little bit like Daniel is like this atom. And the New Testament just splits the atom, and all this power and revelation just bursts out of it. But believe me, it's not missing in the Old Testament. It just hasn't been exploded. And so the New Testament takes this phrase and captures this idea of being incorporated in our King by saying, You are in Christ Jesus. You are in the Messiah. The Messiah was just the name. Christ was the name for the anointed King. You're in the King Jesus. I do an exercise in the New Testament, starting in Ephesians and Colossians and everything else, and just discover all that is yours in Christ Jesus. His holiness makes
1: us a holy people because we're inside him. By faith, through our baptism, and
0: the faith that is represented in that baptism. We are clothed with Christ, Galatians 3. Literally, you're dressed. When God looks at you, he sees his son. He sees his daughter. Yesterday I was sitting with someone preparing for baptism, and as we began to speak through this new identity of being incorporated into Jesus precious tears just began to flow. It's the person who's being touched so deeply by the baptism image that God washes us and then incorporates us into himself and places upon us his identity. I define you, not your story, not your past. Now, your birth family and your birth context is a gift from God to you. I'm not saying it isn't. And we come to terms with that and we work our way. But the greatest identity you will ever discover is the identity of being His.
1: Our past does not define us because the new creation includes us. In
0: His eyes, we are holy people. But then in His eyes, we are a warfare people. Human empires hate holiness. They will always wage war against the kingdom mandate to redeem and save, to deliver, set free, to honor and love the ones Jesus would call the least of these. See, kingdoms worry about the most. Jesus, his heart is for the least. We'll return to this warfare next week. We'll return basically to some of the stuff on the beast, because the next two chapters give us a lot.
1: And we are a people who reign. Make no mistake. How? The more we submit
0: to the king, the more he releases his reign to us and through us. Reigning with Jesus means serving with Jesus. Mark chapter 10 another one of his most absolute famous sayings about the Son of Man. Jesus contrasts, remember what is true of him is true of us. We reign with him. Jesus called his disciples together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the nations, the Gentiles, lorded over them, their high officials, exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first will be the slave of all. This is what it looks like to reign in the kingdom of God. For even the Son of Man, this glorious heavenly figure, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that is why people from every language and tribe and nation and tongue will worship him forever and ever and ever, because nobody
1: has a kingdom like this king. What is true of him becomes true of us because what was true of us became true of him. We were sinners far from God.